0: Part three, Chapter nine of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part three, Chapter nine. To the superficial student of Clodagh's character, this development of a phase in her mental growth may present itself as something distasteful, even unworthy. But to the serious student of human nature, with its manifold and wonderful complexities, it must perforce come clothed in a different guise. Placed by circumstances in a singularly isolated position, springing from a race in whom love of power, love of admiration, love of love itself are inherent qualities, it is not to be wondered at that in the first flush of her realised sovereignty over men she should view the world from a slightly giddy altitude. No one grudges her triumphs and her innocent intrigues to the girl in her first season, Humanity looks on indulgently while she breaks her first lance with the candid joy, the pardonable egotism that is bred of youth. And incongruous, as it may sound, Clodas was the position of the debutante. She was comprehending for the first time, and comprehending with accumulated emotion, the fact that she possessed an individual path in life. And with the arrogance of inexperience, she sprang to the conclusion that every foot crossing that path... Should yield her a toll of homage. And now one foot had crossed it without pause, without even a desire to linger. Her cheeks burned under the smart of her hurt vanity as she turned from the little group that surrounded Lady Frances Hope, and allowed Dearhurst to lead her across the salon. Her emotions were many and confused, but one personality occupied her thoughts against the angry expostulations of her reason. By an illogical, but very human, sequence of impressions, Sir Walter Gore had, in one moment, become the most objectionable, and the most interesting, person of her acquaintance. As she stepped out upon the balcony, Deerehurst drew forward the low chair that she had occupied the night before, and she sank into it with a little sigh. For the first time, in the glamour of her new-found excitement, she felt glad to escape from the crowd and the lights of the salon. For a while her companion made no effort to break the silence that she seemed anxious to preserve. Then at last he changed his position, stepped softly forward, and laid his hand on the back of her chair. "'Is what Barnard tells me true?' he asked. "'Are you really leaving Venice in a week?' She bent her head without looking up. "'But surely we can persuade you—' His voice quickened, then broke off as Clodagh turned to him. "'Does it matter to anyone whether I go or stay?' she asked in a slightly tremulous voice. The only surprise that Deerhurst betrayed was shown in the narrowing of his cold eyes. He studied her penetratingly for a moment. Then he spoke again, very quietly. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said, "'can you ask that question in good faith?' A faint touch of last night's embarrassment wavered across her mind, but this time she swept it defiantly aside. "'Yes, I mean it.' She turned, and again looked up into his face. "'Am I to answer in good faith?' She bent her head, still looking at him. "'Then, judging by the one case of which I can confidently speak, "'Yes, distinctly yes.' There was a pause, and Tode gave a faint laugh. "'And whose is the one case?' Her voice sounded cool, high, even slightly indifferent. It piqued Deerhurst to a further step. He answered her question with another. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said, "'have you ever heard of Circe?' Again she laughed. "'My equitation was extensive, if very intermittent,' she said. "'Yes, I have heard of Circe, and her wild beasts.' He echoed the laugh in his thin, expressive voice. "'I see the implication, "'but I would willingly play even wild beast to your Circe.' He bent over her chair. She drew away with a slight sharp movement, but he did not alter his position. Do you know that a man would follow you anywhere? 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 He let his hand glide softly from the back of the chair to her shoulder. At the touch of his fingers she slipped away from him with a noiseless movement and rose to her feet. Then follow me back to the salon, she said, "'in a voice that still sounded high and light. "'There was a constrained pause, but it was one of short duration. Deerhurst was not the man to be easily taken at a disadvantage. "'For one instant a glimmer of chagrin showed on his composed face. "'The next it was gone. "'He straightened his dignified figure and felt mechanically for his eyeglass. "'For my word,' he said, "'I believe you are, Circe. Use your prerogative.' "'He turned.' laughed a little, and indicated the salon with a courtly gesture. Clodagh looked at him. He puzzled and disconcerted her. To one whose innate instinct was a yielding to impulse, his absolute impassivity in face of disconcerting situations was something incomprehensible. And now, as he stepped aside to give her passage, she gave a quick laugh, expressive of both embarrassment and relief, and crossed the balcony with a certain instinctive haste. During their absence the crowd in the salon had increased, the press about the roulette table had become denser, while at half a dozen card tables sheltered from the general gathering by large screens of old Italian leatherwork parties of four were playing bridge. Ignoring these latter groups, Clodagh crossed the room towards the roulette table, and paused upon the outskirts of the crowd that surrounded it. Deerhurst, following her closely, narrowed his eyes with a touch of interest as he saw that either by intention or accident, she had halted beside Sir Walter Gore. "'Well,' he said in his thin, satirical voice, as he gained her side, "'well, shall we combine forces as we did last night? I brought you luck, remember?' She turned upon him almost sharply. "'No,' she said, "'no, I don't play roulette.' At the vehemence of her denial he raised his eyebrows, and Sir Walter Gore looked round. Seeing the speaker, an involuntary gleam of surprise crossed his face. "'Surely you are not so unfashionable as to disapprove of gambling, Mrs Milbeck?' he asked. Clodagh raised her eyes, and this time her glance was free from coquetry. "'I have not been fashionably brought up,' she said. "'Indeed,' the surprise, and with it a reluctant interest, deepened in Gall's glance. But his eyes wandered doubtfully over her dress.' Invariably quick to follow a train of thought, she gave a short, comprehending laugh. "'Oh, I know what you're thinking of,' she cried. "'I don't look as if I belonged to the wilds. "'People never understand that dressing is a knack that comes to women, "'and does not really mean anything.' He smiled, amused against his will. Again she laughed like a child who has been praised. "'Oh, it's true,' she added. "'I could tell you of a dozen of cases.' but her flow of confidence was suddenly terminated. Valentine Serico, catching sight of her through the throng of people, had made a hasty way towards her. His finely cut, colourless face was animated, and his dark grey eyes looked excited. "'How do you do? How do you do, Mrs Milbank?' he exclaimed. "'Please congratulate me. I've had a run of luck. Needed seventy pounds.' Clodagh's lips parted. Seventy pounds?' she said breathlessly and instinctively she turned to Gore. But Gore's place was empty. At Serico's approach he had moved unostentatiously away. At the knowledge that he was gone, a sense of disappointment fell upon her. She glanced uncertainly at Deerehurst. The old peer, who had been a cynical observer of the little scene, gave a thin laugh. "'Our friend Gore is fearful of contamination,' he said, glancing at his nephew. Serico laughed. "'Gore,' he said contemptuously. "'Oh, Gore and I never did chum up. "'But where have you been hiding yourself all day?' He turned again to Clodagh. "'We've had dark suspicions that old Barney "'has been buying up your society with stock-exchange tips. "'Come now, confess.' He paused and laughed, "'looking with intent admiration into her expressive face. "'And Clodagh, sailing upon the tide of present things, "'elated by the eager interest of two men,' and excited by the grudging interest of a third, forgot that, for every frail craft such as hers, there is an ultimate harbour to be gained, a future to be reckoned with. She lifted her head, met Serico's searching glance, and echoed his inconsequent laugh. End of Part 3 Chapter 9